Um, when it comes to the story of the scripture, and that's what we've been talking about for the past few weeks, uh, how the story of scripture helps us to begin to make sense of all the stories in the scripture. Uh, when we begin to look at the beginning part of the story, which is what we call the Old Testament, and that's where we've been camped out now for quite a few weeks, but, but when you start opening up the beginning part of the story, you find out that there is a large theme which permeates and saturates all of the Old Testament. And it's the idea that the God of promise becomes the hope of a people. That the promise of God begins to be the hope of a people, a particular group of people. And in the Old Testament, we begin to find the interaction and the correlation between God, his promises, and our hope. Because the existence of God shows us in the Old Testament that there is also the existence of hope. Uh, I don't know if you've thought about it lately, but if we live in a world without God, if God does not exist, that means that man, that means you and me and all of humankind and all of the universe, that we are doomed to certain irreversible death. Uh, we are destined to a ending that has no hope, no hope really in this life and certainly no hope beyond this life. That's the reality of a worldview that says there's no such thing as God. In a reality that says, you know, God isn't there. God's never been there. This is just a conjuring of our imagination. An existence where there is no God is an existence where there can be no hope. Now, I know we don't want to think about it, but we have to think about it from time to time just to know what the alternative worldview is for us who have faith and who believe in the existence of God. Without God, our life is but a spark in infinite blackness, a spark that appears, if but for a moment, it flickers, and then it dies out forever. <laughs> Aren't you glad you came to church today? Yep. Right? And then the same is true for the universe because the universe, according to science, it's expanding and it's expanding and it's growing older and older and colder and colder and it's using up all of its energy. And your fate and my fate is the same fate for the universe because one day stars will burn out and they will collapse into black holes and it will leave a universe and leave a universe that has no light, no heat, and no life and certainly no hope. The only thing that will be left behind are corpses of stars and galaxies that are just edging off into expanding darkness into the cold recesses of space. I couldn't imagine waking up every day with that as my worldview. I couldn't imagine waking up every day with that being the logical conclusion of the way that I understand the world around me. A world without God means that we are trapped in an existence without meaning. It means we're surrounded by people who have no value in a world that can offer us absolutely no purpose and no hope whatsoever. Without God, there is an inescapable, undeniable, inevitable future to all of our lives. Death without hope. And the idea is a world without God is a world without hope. Now, for Christians, the good news is we don't believe any of that. As Christians, we believe that God exists because we believe that God exists. We also believe that hope exists. 
And we wake up every day of our lives and we see everything and everyone around us against the backdrop of the reality of God. We wake up and we know that everybody has purpose and everybody was made on purpose. And we wake up every day and we look around and we see people who resemble us in different colors of skins and different shape with different experiences. But yet, even though they're different from us. And even though they may not share much in common with us, we know that every single one of them, they have dignity and they have worth because they've all, like us, been made in the image of God. We wake up and we look around and we know that the world is full of meaning. We know that we live among people who have value. And we know that we are part of a population in a world that has purpose and in a world that also has hope. That's what we believe. And because we believe that, we can also be a people of hope because faith gives life to hope. Let's all just say that out loud. Here in London, Somerset, Williamsburg, faith gives life to hope. Hope does not come before faith. Faith comes before hope. Once you have faith and once you believe that God is, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, once you have faith in God, in God's existence, in God's presence, in the reality of God's created order. Once you believe that God created the heavens and the earth and everything has meaning and purpose and value because of who it was made by and because God has a purpose behind it all. Once you believe that, once you have that type of faith, then hope is walking just behind that faith. Without faith, we can have no hope. But once we are a people of faith who believe in God and believe in a God who makes promises and more importantly than that, that keeps his promises, then we can be a people also marked by hope. Now, you say, well, what is hope? Hope is being able to see light when there's only darkness. That's hope. Hope is being able to see light when you can see nothing but darkness. Hope is not refusing to look at your circumstances. Hope is not about being, you know, you know, head in the clouds, pie in the sky. That's not hope. Hope is not refusing to look at your circumstances because of how bad they are. But hope, biblical hope, hope that flows from faith, hope that is authored in our confidence in God, that type of hope looks beyond our circumstances to what can be and what we believe one day what will be. So concerning hope, because we are a people of hope, we are a people of faith, we believe in the reality of God, a God of promise, and that God of promise has become the hope of this people, the people of faith. And concerning hope, here, here's the big idea, and this is what we're talking about today. No matter how it feels, no matter how it looks, no matter how it seems, for us, because of God, there is always hope hope. It may look hopeless, but it's not the end of the story. It may seem hopeless, but it's not the end of the story. It may feel hopeless, but it's not the end of the story. And so we started this whole thing off by talking about the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the beginning of the story. God created, man rebelled, man ran away, but God is coming after us. You know, God's coming after us not to pay us back, but to win us back. And then from Genesis 12 on, that's the story of God coming after his people. God coming after us to rescue us from sin and death. In Genesis chapter 12, 
That's where God really begins to throw into motion his plan and his promise to win you back and to win me back. So the Old Testament, as we've been reading through it, it is the epic history of how a family became a nation, God's chosen nation, through whom he will save the world. Trevor, can you give me just a a little nugget? Can you give me just a little statement so that I can frame the Old Testament, so that I can always know what the Old Testament is really about right here in the foreground? Well, the Old Testament is the epic history. It's the epic story of how a family, the family of Abraham, because God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you the father of a family. I'm going to make you the father of a nation. And through that nation, the whole world's going to be blessed. And that's what all of the Old Testament is about. It is the epic history of how a family became a nation. And they did. It's history. It's a fascinating history. It's such history that it should compel us to want to believe. If, if you already believe, it's such a compelling history that it takes your faith even deeper, your confidence to an even greater place in your heavenly father. It's the story of how a family became a nation, God's chosen nation through whom he will save the world, the nation of Israel. Now, God not only promised Abraham that he would have a great name and that he would father a family and a nation, but he also promised Abraham, and this is fascinating, you can go home and read it, mark it down, write it down in your notes, He also made Abraham a promise in Genesis chapter 17. He said, Abraham, kings are going to come from you. Kings are going to come from you. Royalty is going to come from you, Abraham. And so here's a man who has no children. Here's a man who has no children, but yet he's ultimately going to father a family that becomes a nation. And not only that, but they are, according to God, one day going to become a kingdom, and it's the story of God's chosen people, a nation called Israel, through whom God is going to save the world. And so what God is doing in the Old Testament, you say, what's that all about? Well, I'm glad you ask. You're the one who's asking the question. You're also the answer to the question. Why is God doing all of this? Because of you. Why is God doing this? Because of us. God has got a plan to win back his family. He has got a plan to make right everything that sin has made wrong. And so, a thousand years after God made a promise to Abraham. Now, we don't like to wait five minutes. You get irritated when you send a text to somebody and they don't respond within the minute. And then you get even more irritated when you send somebody a text and all of a sudden you see the bubbles. And nothing ever comes through. It's like, but there were bubbles. Why were there bubbles? And there's no message. I know they saw it because there were bubbles. And bubbles wreck your day. Bubbles have just about undermined some of your best friendships. (laughs) Bubbles has led to you being ticked off at your wife, ticked off at your husband, yelling at your kids. We don't like to wait five minutes. We don't like to wait an hour. We don't like to wait a day. We don't like to wait a month. We don't like to wait a year. We don't like to wait five years. We don't like to wait 10 years. We're not good at waiting. It was a thousand years between the time that God made Abraham a promise until it actually was fulfilled to the degree that the family had become a nation and the nation became a kingdom. In the year 1050 BC, because we're still on this side of the Old Testament, 1050 BC, Saul became king. He ruled for 40 years. In 1010 BC, David became king. And and God made David a promise. A promise just as significant as the promise he made to Abraham. Because again, we see this thread. 
The promise of God results in the hope of a people. The promise of God results in the hope of a people. And it was that way ever since the Garden of Eden. The promise of God results in the hope of a people. And so God makes King David a promise. He says, I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. This is fascinating. Let me ask you a question, show of hands. How many of you have already before today heard of King David? Just raise up a hand, just raise it up everywhere. You got him? I see you there in Somerset, hands up, okay. Some of you, you've lived under a rock your entire life and we're really glad to introduce you to this guy. But most all of the world, most all of the world, if not all of the world to some degree, they have heard about this David guy, this, this King David, and they couldn't tell you many of them two things that he did, maybe not even one thing that he did. And they don't even know how they know about him. It's not even clear to them why they've heard about David and why they've heard about King David and why they've heard about a city of David. And it just, it just never dawns on them why they know about this. But God said, I'm going to make your name like one of the greatest men on earth. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house or a dynasty or a line of kings for you, David. God promised David that he would give, you know, out of his lineage would come a line of kings, a dynasty of kings. He says, when your days are over, this is God's message to David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. This is so important because as we get ready to start the New Testament next week, as we get ready to start the New Testament next week, this is so important. And this is why the scriptures waste no words. This is why God points out to David, David, this is a biological lineage. David, this is gonna be passed on through DNA. David, this is being passed on through your genetic code. This is about blood. This is about family. This is about your particular line of kings, David. This is about your flesh and blood because that's gonna be important next week. And I will establish his kingdom, whose kingdom? Your biological descendant. Your biological descendant, David, I'm gonna establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Whose kingdom? This biological descendant of David. How long forever your house, this dynasty of yours, David, and your kingdom will endure forever. You think, it's like, is that hyperbole? No, that's not hyperbole because this is gonna be so important to the narrative as it continues, as we are rushing to the ending of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. It will endure forever because of me. Your throne will be established forever. So God makes a promise to Abraham and then God makes a promise to David. The promise of God begins to be the hope of a people. And all of a sudden in the Old Testament, we find people waiting on God to keep promises. We found a thousand years of waiting between Abraham and the time the kingdom of Israel actually came to fruition. And during that time, there was an expectation that God had made a promise. And if God makes a promise, God's going to keep a promise. And so there was this expectation that God would keep his promise. And he did. But there was still more of that promise left to fulfill. Well, after David comes King Solomon. And after Solomon comes Rehoboam. And this is where we left off last week. Rehoboam, he sent the whole kingdom into civil war. And in 930, the kingdom split. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You say, well, you told me this last week. Well, a fourth of you weren't here. But for the others that were here, you say, why are you telling me this again? Because one of the struggles that we have in reading the Old Testament is knowing when things are happening. And if you don't know when things are happening, you, you cannot possibly know the true meaning of what is being said. 
because you don't understand the context. If you don't understand the context of what is being said, when it is being said, you're going to miss the meaning behind it all. And so this is really important. The kingdom split and it became the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so you're going to read in the Old Testament, it refers to the northern kingdom as Israel and it refers to the southern kingdom as Judah. And up there in the north, it was just all bad all the time. Leader after leader, you know, king after king, generation after generation, you know, it, it was just disobedience and rebellion against God until... In 722 BC, they were sacked, overran, and crushed by the Assyrian Empire. They came in, they destroyed the northern kingdom, and they carried many of them off. Those that they didn't kill, they carried them off into captivity. That left the southern kingdom. Now, again, I want to zero in on this just a little bit because there's going to be 300 or so years of kings down in the south. There's going to be good kings, there's going to be bad kings, and as the kings go, so went the people. A good king would lead the people back to God and a bad king would lead you know, the people away from God. And so that's just the way it was over and over again. The role of the prophets, both the books of the major prophets and the minor prophets, they were messengers that came from God and they weren't always necessarily truth tellers or foretellers as much as they were truth tellers. They were just coming to deliver a message. Sometimes they were forth telling, but sometimes they were just telling. Sometimes they were just showing up saying, God said, get your act together or else. God's counting to three. And he's on two. God's counting to three and he's on the first syllable. Of th- 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 so you need to turn back to God. And so, you know, the people would listen. There'd be revival followed by rebellion. Revival followed by rebellion. But fast forward to the end of those 300 up and down years and you come to the final three kings. And, and this, is, this is so important. There was no way that I could tell you what I wanted to tell you today without telling you what I'm about to tell you. All right. So. The last three kings of Judah, the last three kings of the southern kingdom was Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. But first, let me tell you a little bit about Jehoiakim. Now, if somebody kidnapped a son or daughter of yours and probably said, tell me one thing about Jehoiakim and I will let your kid go, your kid's going to be in a bad situation. We just don't know a lot about this guy. We, we, you know, he's not one of the big guys that we talk about. Boy, the days of King Jehoiakim. What? Did you just speak in tongues? What? What What was that? I'm sorry, I couldn't understand you. Listen, Jehoiakim, he, he was placed into power by a pharaoh in Egypt by, by the name of Necho. Now, for those of you who forget that the Bible isn't, you know, it's not a once upon a time in a land far, far away type of book. This is a, a book rooted in history. It's an epic history. It's an epic history of a group of people, a family that became a nation, that became a kingdom. So he was placed there by Pharaoh, uh, Necho, and, and he was kind of the puppet king of, of the Egyptians until the Babylonians, this new world empire from the east, this magnificent and powerful and charismatic, you know, leader by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he decided to knock off the, you know, the old kid on the block, which was Pharaoh in Egypt, a dynasty that had been around for, you know, hundreds and even over a thousand years. And so he goes down there and he beats up on the Egyptians and he figures, okay, I better go up and take care of his little puppet king, Jehoiakim. So Nebuchadnezzar, around the year 605, we're about 600 years from the New Testament beginning, about 605, Nebuchadnezzar walks into Jerusalem and knocks on the door of Jehoiakim and says, hey, I just want you to know, new boss in town, I'm him. So are you going to work for me? Like you were working for Pharaoh down in Egypt? And Joey can say, oh, yes, yes, I promise I'm going to work for you. And, and so he did for a while, and then he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And somewhere around 597 or 598, Nebuchadnezzar was just getting tired of Jehoiakim kind of just jerking his chain around and not doing what he told him to do. So he came back 
in a second invasion because at the first invasion, he came in and he looted the city and he looted some of the temple and the people that he didn't kill in the battle coming in, he took many of them captive. He kidnapped them as prisoners of war. Now, interesting, in that first invasion of Nebuchadnezzar, there is a young man that's taken prisoner. His name is Daniel. There's a whole book in the Old Testament that's devoted to this story, Daniel, who was taken from his home and taken to Babylon. Fascinating story. This is when that happened. This is what's going on during that time. So Daniel goes off to Babylon. Jehoiakim continues not to listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says. A few years later, he's coming back in a second invasion. And during this invasion, Jehoiakim dies and King Jehoiachin takes over. And he's only going to reign for three months, just three months. Just three months, that's all, that's all he got. And he was captured by Nebuchadnezzar and taken as a prisoner of war back to Babylon. Now, I'm telling you, this is so exciting. I, I just want to tell you before I'm able to tell you. This is so exciting to know this. This is so exciting to be told just a little bit about King Jehoiakim because, or Jehoiachin, it's pronounced either way. I didn't know which one to go with. I'll probably go with both, all right? So you, you have this king that goes for three months and then he's taken off as a prisoner to war. In this second invasion, there's another captivity. Another group of people are captured and taken from Jerusalem. In this second invasion, a young 25-year-old priest is taken as a prisoner of war. He has a book in the Old Testament. His name is Ezekiel. And we'll talk more about him in just a moment. So Daniel's been carted off to Babylon. Now, a priest by the name of Ezekiel has been carted off to Babylon. And so when you're reading through Ezekiel, now you know kind of what's going on. This is just a real unstable time politically, economically. This is just a, a bad time of rebellion against God. And the people are under the judgment of God. And then it brings us to the last king, that king we talked about last week, Zedekiah. And he was stubborn and rebellious and and Jeremiah said, hey, you, you got you to surrender or else it's going to be bad. And he refused to surrender. And so, you know, a few years later in 586, the third and final invasion of Nebuchadnezzar, he came in, he destroyed the city, he tore down the walls, he tore down the temple, he took all the artifacts out of the temple, what were left any, you know, behind from the other two. And, and then he takes off another large group of people into captivity. And he left behind another group. And so this is what's going on. And it was just a bad time. And, and here's how the book of Chronicles ends. This is, this is kind of the, uh, the footnotes on this particular time in history. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of promise. He sent word to them through his messengers, his prophets, again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. And so he gave grace after grace after grace after grace. But they mocked. They mocked God's messengers. They despised his word. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people. And there was no, what? Talk to me. Remedy. Wow. No remedy. You know what you call that? When somebody says you're sick and there's nothing we can do, it's kind of hopeless. No remedy, it feels irreversible. No remedy, it feels final. No remedy. The wrath of God. And if you want to know what the wrath of God is, I think really the wrath of God, as we see it in the scripture, is just God letting us have our own way. When God let you, lets you have what you want and God lets you choose to have what you choose to have, whew, he sent them opportunity after opportunity. 
but they refused. And it says, God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, God will not get in the way of us having our way. They are getting exactly what they wanted. And this begins to be the narrative for the rest of the Old Testament until we get towards some of the latter books. It's Israel in exile. It's Israel's exile. It's, and exile is when you're taken out of your homeland and you're made to live in a foreign land. You're, you're in exile. You're a refugee. That's what's going on in this segment of Israel's history. They've been taken from home and they're living in a foreign land. Now, exile is an incredible thing that you can trace all throughout the scriptures. God made Adam and Eve, put them in his presence in the Garden of Eden, sacred space, and said, hey, follow me, obey me, love me, and you can stay here forever. But they chose to disobey God. And so what happened? God expelled them from the garden. And what did they go into? Exile. They're no longer in their home. They are a people now without home. They are foreigners in a foreign territory. So they're in exile. We see it in Abraham's descendants. Abraham promised God a piece of land, but then we find his descendants in exile in Egypt. And there they are living outside away from the home that God has intended for them to have. Then once they cross over the Jordan River with Joshua, he says, if you obey me, you can stay. If you obey me, I'll protect you. But the moment that you disobey me, I will withdraw my protection from you and you will be carted off into foreign lands. You will be in exile. And so this is a big theme that we see happening all throughout the scripture. Israel in exile. Now, before all of this took place, God would send prophets, as I said, to predict that all of this was going to happen. Prophets like Isaiah would show up and say, hey, it's going to be bad. When God is judging, when the wrath of God knocks at the door, it's going to be bad. It's going to be, it's going to be worse than you ever thought it was going to be. It's going to be terrible. But even in that message of judgment, because, you know, a lot of us, we grew up saying, you know, we just don't like the message of judgment. There's just so much judgment in the house of God and so much, you know, hell, fire and brimstone and all of that. But here's the thing. The prophets, they talked about the judgment of God, but they looked beyond the judgment of God. And beyond the judgment of God, there was hope. The judgment of God was not the end of hope. There was hope beyond the judgment of God. And Isaiah and other prophets, they saw a future judgment day that was coming to the kingdom of Judah. But they also saw beyond that judgment to hope. And so Isaiah, he would talk about this future judgment. And then he would start talking about the fact that it's going to seem hopeless, but it's not hopeless. It's going to seem like we're shrouded in darkness, but there's a, there's a glimmer of light. And he started talking about, of all things, a birth of a child. He shows up in the middle of all of this, and as he predicts judgment, and as he speaks about hope beyond the judgment, he says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. A sign of what? A sign of hope. A sign that he's not left you. A sign that he's not through with you. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel or God with us. And, and, and you know, people are listening to Isaiah. I thought he was talking about the judgment of God. Now he's talking about a baby. I, Isaiah may need to retire. He's kind of all over the place. He, he left his notes at home. I don't know. But, and then he would go on and he would say, for unto us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. And this was of a concern because the shoulders that the government has been on for the past few centuries, bad news. 
Nobody's shoulders were strong enough. Not even David's. Not even Solomon's. Not even Josiah or Hezekiah or some of the good kings. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And, you know, we hear this, these sets of verses, you know, during December every single year. But we, we don't always remember exactly when it was spoken and why it was spoken. Isaiah is talking about a day of judgment. And beyond that judgment, there is hope. There is a promise that exceeds the judgment. There is grace that surpasses the judgment. And he says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign. And everybody at all campuses talk to me on David's throne. This is important. We're talking about a biological descendant of David. We're talking about something that Nathan the prophet said to David hundreds of years before. And now Isaiah is reiterating the same message, the same promise of hope. And over his kingdom, establishing it, upholding it with justice and righteousness. Because that's what people were longing for. In all of this chaos, and all of this sin, there was the need for justice. And there were no people extending justice. Upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Isaiah predicted the judgment of God, and he says when the judgment of God falls, when the judgment of God comes, when the wrath of God knocks at your door, Judah, what you're going to look at, what you're going to look like at the end of the judgment of God is a dead, dry, decimated stump. Israel had been a towering tree. Israel had been a tree that was full of life and producing fruit. But this tree, because it was rebellious, and this tree, because it refused to turn back to God, God would one day knock on their door and judgment would cut down that tree. And what would be left at the end of that season of judgment would just be an old, dead, dry, decimated stump. And Isaiah says, when judgment comes, at the end of that judgment, you're going to look at this stump and say, it's over. It's over for us. It's over for the nation. It's over for the dynasty of David. This whole thing is done. It's finished. It's irreversible. It's final. And the inevitable conclusion is it's just dead and it's going to stay dead. Everybody's thinking, Isaiah, that sounds terrible. And he says it's going to be worse than I can make it sound. But then, but then, just over on the other side of judgment, Isaiah again says there's hope. Just over on the other side of pain, there's hope. Just over on the other side of darkness, there's hope. Just over on the other side of your worst case scenario, Isaiah says there's hope. And he goes on in chapter 11, he says, a shoot, a little bitty sign of light, just a, just a little shoot. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse is David's father. David, David sinned. David had a scandal. His descendants have just absolutely thrown the nation into chaos. And it's like Isaiah can't even bring himself to mention David. He says, but a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. Jesse was also the grandson of a couple that maybe you've heard of before. Boaz and Ruth. There's a whole book in the Old Testament, the book of Ruth. It's a love story. 
It took place during the days of judges when every person was doing right in their own eye and it seemed as though nothing was good going on. But over in the corner of Israel, down there near Bethlehem, there is a love story taking place. And Boaz is going to meet up with Ruth and they're going to hook up and marry and they're going to have children and one of which is Jesse that's going to be their grandson. And then his son is going to be a king in Israel. So this is all so intertwined in the story. Such, I'm telling you, we should love our Bibles. We should love the scripture because of the narrative and the story that it tells. And so he says, out of the stump of Jesse, he says, out of something that it doesn't look like there's any hope, out of something that looks dead and dry and decimated, out of something that looks destroyed, out of something that seems like it has no life source, out of something that seems like there is no hope whatsoever for it. Because Israel said, or Isaiah said, this is what Israel is like. But just when things seem darkest and just when things seem hopeless, a little shoot is going to come up out of a die, a dead, dry, decimated stump. This is incredible. That out of death, will come alive. Well, that's a familiar thing. That out of something that is hopeless comes hope. That out of the ruins comes something beautiful. That out of ashes, something will be rebuilt. And he says that a branch will bear fruit. And in that day, the root of Jesse the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples and the nations, not just one nation, but all the nations because God's coming after us. God's coming after not just one nation. There's one nation. It's his chosen people, but it's through them that he's going to save all the nations of the world. They will rally to him who this biological descendant of David. They will rally to this line of kings that there's going to be final, there's going to be one final king at the end of that line. They're going to rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. And so the message is, <laughs> the message is amazing. The message is that when Nebuchadnezzar left the third time, that's how things looked, that's how things were, that's how things felt. Hopeless, lifeless, fruitless. No future to this. Nobody takes this and decorates. This is death. This is a reminder of something that was living and now is dead. This is a reminder of something that produced fruit but no longer produces anything. And Isaiah says, as bad as it's going to look, feel, and seem at the end of judgment, there's going to be a branch that emerges. And all the nations are going to rally to this branch. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar left that third time, there was a prophet left standing, weeping in the smoky ruins of Jerusalem, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah has two books in the Old Testament, the book of Lamentations and the book of Jeremiah. And as everybody, the best and the brightest were carted off, Jeremiah was left behind. And in the smoky ruins of a destroyed city, a destroyed temple, Sitting there looking at a city and a nation and a people that looks like an old dead, dry, decimated stuff. Jeremiah lifts up his voice and begins to say, there's hope. There's hope beyond judgment. Here's what Jeremiah says. The days are coming, saith the Lord. 
a new day, a better day. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a little shoot, just a, just a little offshoot of something that seemed dead, out of something that seemed hopeless, out of something that seemed without any future, out of that will come a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And here is Jeremiah who went toe-to-toe with Zedekiah and said, surrender and the people will live. Surrender and you will live. But he refused to surrender. So he lost his family. He lost his nation. He lost his kingdom. But he's talking about a better king. He's talking about a greater king. And he says, in his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. So then, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. But now they will say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north, and up out of the countries where they had been banished, then they will live in their own land. Jeremiah in the smoke and the dust and the ruins and the ashes of it all, he lifts up his voice and says, I know they've taken you away, but God's going to bring you back. I know that when you look over your shoulder and you see God's city, Jerusalem and God's temple, and it's all destroyed, and God's people's in shackles, and God's people lying dead in the streets, I know it seems dead. I know it seems dry. I know it seems destroyed and decimated, but I'm telling you, what seems like there has no hope attached to it, God's going to bring you back. There's hope on the other side of exile. So don't give up. What feels irreversible, what what seems final, it isn't. So they're going to go to the land of Babylon for 70 years. And God promises, I'm going to bring you back. Now, Jeremiah is standing in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, in Babylon, that priest in his mid-20s is sitting beside the streams And God gives him a word. Ezekiel the prophet. Jeremiah is trying to encourage the captives in Babylon. Ezekiel's trying to encourage not only the captives, but those even back in Jerusalem. And God gives Ezekiel a vision. He says, the hand of the Lord was on me. And he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. And it was full of bones. It's full of death, full of things that were once alive, but no longer alive. Bones are nothing more than a reminder of what was. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. Ezekiel said, I... I saw this valley, and in this valley there were, there were just bones. There were big bones and small bones, and they were all disconnected, and the winds had blown them, and, and the sands had covered them up, and there were skulls and femurs and tibias, and there were hands and there were wrists. And he says, I see these bones, and they're just not dead. They're, they're dry. These bones have been dead for a while. And you look at these bones, and you know what you think? You think, this used to be alive. You think about this used to have strength. This used to produce. This once upon a time could move. 
This once upon a time, it had purpose. Once upon a time, it had life. But now it just seems hopeless. Now it just seems lifeless. Now it seems as though there's no future. For old, dead, dry bones. What good is a valley full of bones? And God said, Ezekiel, can these bones live? I don't know, God. It looks pretty bad. Looks pretty irreversible. Looks pretty final. Looks lifeless to me. I I don't know, but only you know, God. And God told Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy to those bones. I want you to preach to those bones. And Ezekiel, he only knew to do what God told him to do. So he began to preach to those bones. And all of a sudden, he began to hear the biggest sound, the noise of bones coming together. And as those bones were coming together, they were connecting joint and joint, tendons and ligaments, connecting those bones, holding them in place. All of a sudden, flesh began to cover those bones. And all of a sudden, these dead, dry bones were bodies. But they were still dead. And God said, Ezekiel, they lack breath. So I want you to prophesy to the four corners. And I want you to call for the breath of God. And Ezekiel prophesied to the four corners and called for the breath of God to come. And the breath of God came, entered into every single one of those bodies. And they began to sit up and they began to stand up. And all of a sudden they appeared as a mighty, vast army. And Ezekiel's looking at it and he can't believe what he sees. He says, God, what's the meaning of all of this? And then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, therefore prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open up your graves and bring you back from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And God's going to bring them back. It looks dead. It looks dry. It looks hopeless. But there's light on the other side. And God's going to bring them back home because there's a baby that's got to be born. God's going to bring them back home because there's got to be a young girl who's got to travel to the city of David to give birth to her firstborn son. And this is how Chronicles, Kings, and Jeremiah ends. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year Awil Marduk became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. He did this on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. The line of David is intact. The line of kings has not been decimated. What seemed lifeless, what seemed cut off, the dynasty of David, the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel, the promise of God, it all seemed over. But God kept the king alive. And as the New Testament opens, an angel appears and says to this young girl, 
you will conceive and give birth to a son and you're to call his name Jesus. He'll be great and he'll be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and in his kingdom will never end. Every promise God makes, God keeps. And that means there's hope for you. So your marriage, your finances, your relationship, the son or the daughter that's gone astray, your future, when you look at it, it looks like an old dead dry stump. It looks like a valley full of bones and it seems like there's no hope. It seems like there's no brightness. There's no light beyond the darkness and it seems like there's no hope. It's all so final. It's irreversible. There's no hope, but there is always hope when the God who makes the promise is the God who keeps the promise. And he says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. After the bad, I can turn it for good. And the afflictions, though they're many, I will make them survivable. Amen. And that's the story of where we get to that sets the stage for next week. Because that baby that's born, 30 years later, we find him hanging on the cross. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, it looked lifeless. It all looked so very hopeless. It looked irreversible and it looked final. And they took that stump and they took those bones off the cross and they put it in a tomb. But God can turn a grave of death into a womb of life. And out of death came life. And out of what was hopeless came hope. And out of darkness came life. And because of Jesus, nothing is final, irreversible, or hopeless for you or for me. Heavenly Father, it's the story of a God who makes a promise, a story of a people who believes the promise. It's the promise of God that becomes the hope of a people. (laughs) It's the reminder that though it may seem hopeless, it may feel hopeless, it's not. God, you're able to bring life out of a dead, dry stump and you're able to resurrect dry bones. That's not the story of the Old Testament, God. That is our story today. So there is no such thing as hopelessness. There is no such thing as final. There is no such thing as irreversible. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive and hope is available. Let's all stand together and let's sing a song that reminds us of what our hope is built upon. Father, we sing this in celebration. We sing this in worship as bones that have been resurrected and dead dry stumps that have come to life and bear fruit. We sing it to you, Jesus. Amen.